On this bonus episode of The Good Book Club, we collaborate with Mormon Book Reviews and Stephen Pinecker to bring you a discussion with author Chris Thomas about his wonderful book, Unexpected, The Backstory of Finding Elizabeth Smart and Growing Up in the Culture of an American Religion. Chris was thrust into the spotlight as the family media spokesman for the Smart family during their nine-and-a-half-month ordeal as they searched for their kidnapped daughter, Elizabeth. Chris discusses the whirlwind of press and police, volunteers, negotiations, and more as everyone worked to bring Elizabeth home again. His insider's look is something most of us can't even imagine. This was an excellent book and a riveting discussion. This bonus event was originally recorded on Tuesday, July 11th, 2023. Welcome, everybody, to a bonus episode of not just The Good Book Club, but also Mormon Book Reviews. (laughs) Mormon (laughs) Book Reviews. And in tangent, with the Mormon Stories Book Club. This is kind of an epic trifecta of three of the book and book club presences out there in the Mormon landscape. So we are really excited tonight because what has brought us all together, Steve, why don't you tell us what has brought us all together? <laughs> well, quite unexpectedly, uh, we got uh, Chris Chris uh, Thomas actually was somebody that I reached out to when, when one of my uh, friends recommended that I have him come on the program. So I reached out to him and I think last time I was in Utah uh, mm-hmm. on Facebook and uh, I, I then he said, this is a really good guy and I should check out his book. So I did. And Chris was nice enough to send me a copy of it. And Chris is just a fascinating person because he was the individual who was the family spokesperson for the uh, smart family when Elizabeth went missing. And so this is really a fascinating uh, book. And like, we, we probably can talk about that later, Rebecca, but we, neither one of us could put the book down mm-hmm. and it made for it to be a very compelling interview for on our program. Uh, uh, you know, when we did, when we did the interview on um, Mormon book reviews and you are my co-host and I get to be your co-host here for this event. So I'm very honored and privileged. We're able to do this. Oh, thank you. I kind of feel like we're just dueling co-hosts. We're just kind of together, just back and forth. You know what I mean? That song, wherever I go, whatever, you know, should we sing together, Steve? I think that would make this a great show. Anyway, we are here tonight to welcome Chris Thomas. How are you, Chris? I am terrific. So good to be with you again. Oh, yeah, we can't get enough of talking to you. And this book, as Steve said, is just amazing. We have been reading this in The Good Book Club. We have been reading this in the Mormon Stories Book Club. I know that we've been talking about it on Steve's program. And so I'm guessing that a lot of your viewers are aware of this book and have read it or just have it on the radar. So we are absolutely thrilled to have Chris here and to be able to dive in tonight. And before we get started with that, we have actually kind of a special event. Steve, why don't we tell everybody what's about to happen. So what's about to happen is that Chris sent me a total of three copies of his book and two to give away to my audience. So for the month of May, we had a book drawing and and that we featured Chris's book. And so uh, so I forwarded the entrance entrance to Rebecca. And so she's going to pull two names out of what kind of jar is that again? You know, I had to break into my old food storage. I used to have this full of beets. (laughs) <laughs> totally kidding. I didn't. But it, it makes a good. Can you imagine someone eating this many beets? Oh my God. <laughs> no, not going to happen. I think this is some kind of decorative jar from my laundry room. I was never been a canner. I don't think I can can. I, it just is not me. So too busy reading. All right. So I'm going to reach in and we need two 
name. Pull one Is that out, correct? One yeah, we're going to pull one at one. first. Okay. All right. I've got this little one here. Let's hope I can read it. I'm notorious for not being able to see. Okay. This says the first winner of Chris's wonderful book, Unexpected, is Jan Harlow from Henrico, Virginia, which she has very nicely explained is a suburb of Richmond, Henrico, with the name of an Indian tribe here in Virginia. So we learned a little bit about that area of Virginia. Congratulations, Jan Harlow. That's very exciting. You now own a copy of Unexpected. So that's excellent. Okay. Where else in the world? Because you have international entrants, don't you, Steve? You have viewers residents globally. Oh, that's right. Shipping costs. But you do have viewers from all over the world. So that makes it fun. Okay. All right. I'm pulling out this one here. Okay. Let's open this. Oh my goodness, this is just an email address. Isn't that interesting? It's not an address, but it says it is Dave Westwood Okay. from yahoo.com. <laughs> oh, I, so, I didn't catch that one. Well, Dave Westwood, we're going to have to get in touch with you. You need some of your yeah. address. All yeah, right. and I looked carefully at this email because I thought, is there, there was no address on it. It was just, oh. you'll have to, when you have his email address, you can email him back and say, where can I send the hard copy? So Jan and Dave, you guys are the winners of the book that Chris was so generous to send to Steve so that more people can read it. And we'll put the lid back on the jar for now. There it is. All right, let's pull up our next slide because we would like to read Chris's bio to everybody very quickly. And then we will just dive right into the conversation. And this is right off of the book jacket of Unexpected. So... Uh, Chris Thomas is a writer, speaker, and communication professional. He is best known for his work as the smart family publicist during the nine and a half months Elizabeth was missing. In this capacity, he filled more than 10,000 calls from journalists, served as a family spokesperson by completing hundreds of interviews, helped coordinate the smarts lobbying efforts for the National Amber Alert, and managed a crush of media when Elizabeth was rescued. John Walsh of America's Most Wanted said that Thomas deserves most of the credit for keeping the public and the family focused on finding Elizabeth. Thomas also managed the trial and sentencing of of Elizabeth's abductors, helping position her as a leading child advocate and managed Elizabeth's engagement, her surprise wedding, the birth of her children and the divorce of her parents. In addition to Elizabeth, Thomas has managed more than 300 crises for companies, nonprofits, government organizations, and families. He earned a bachelor's degree in communication from Westminster College. Welcome, Chris. And I think we can take our slides down now and just chat. So, wow, that is quite something, Chris. My goodness. Uh, How does that make you feel to hear all that read just like that? (laughs) It doesn't seem real, but yeah, yeah, it's been an amazing ride for sure. That is just incredible. Yep. No, Steve and I, um, I think as you heard us mention, we interviewed uh, Chris before on Mormon Book Reviews and just had just a really riveting interview about the whole scenario and Chris's background. What What do you remember from that interview, Steve? Well, I just, I just really, I mean, there was so many, um, it was was, the way you told the story, what I found was so unique about the way you wrote the book was that it was kind of a series of flashbacks that events that happened in the past that maybe didn't really make sense at the time would later make sense and help inform you and actually have those connections. So it was, it was the unique way of storytelling 
of telling something in the past that you're like, well, why is he even telling this story? And then you get the payoff later in the book that shows why the importance. So maybe talk about that process of writing the book that way. Yeah, through flashbacks. It was it was very unique. I had not seen that before and it left you just riveted to the page. It was amazing. Absolutely. Um, it was kind of two books. So the, the first book, as you know, is about my, uh, no, like the first book, the first story is about my neighbor, Baker Paxton, who I grew up next to, who uh, was a challenge. And, and really that book was coming to understand and respect him before it was too late. And so I had written that. I'd written a few versions of it and my wife read it. Uh, and it's, uh, and I'd written this epilogue, the epilogue, which is a lot of it is the chapter called The Vet, the last chapter of the book. And my wife read and said, this is your book. It's the smarts meets Baker. And I said, oh, you're you're crazy. That would never work. Uh, and, you know, my wife is always right. I, I have to admit, she she has excellent judgment and uh, figured out how to do it. It took some time and, and, and a lot of, oh boy, as all books do, a lot of head scratching and head banging and um, sleepless nights, but it, it finally came together. I think the thing that really pushed me though was the 20th anniversary of Elizabeth's rescue in March. And to meet that deadline, uh, I had a really tight schedule and sometimes working under deadline for me, working under deadline, I do better work, but it was, it was a crazy process, but that's, that's why it goes back and forth. A lot of people who've read the book said, you know, initially I was like, come on, I want to read the smart stuff. I'm bored. Um, I don't know why you're putting this in here. And then by the end, they're like, oh, that was to me, if I was to compare the two, the Baker part, uh, Trump, the Elizabeth smart part. And I actually got sucked in and really loved it. So, and that's been gratifying. That's what I mean. It was such a unique way. And you didn't exactly understand how it, what was going on at first, because you're talking about your childhood. You're talking about this very curmudgeonly neighbor who basically made you and your family's life hell. I mean, he was very difficult to get along with. Then you're fast forwarding to, you know, being thrust into this media spotlight. And then eventually you see these two worlds coming together, the skills, you know, the, the ways of dealing with people that you learned as a child, the lessons, the things that happened, everything informed what you were able to do at such an incredible young age. How old were you again when you were thrust into that media spotlight right there? You were very young. 29. Yeah. Yeah. 29. That is just incredible that you were able to navigate all of that. And uh, maybe we can mention really quickly, and of course we'll get to the grid soon and everyone can ask questions, but your background and how they even, I mean, as far as professionally, how, how they even arrived at you. Do you know what I mean? A 29 year old kid. How did this happen? How did you land there? You know, there, there were lots of connections it, to a degree. It really felt like, I don't believe in destiny necessarily, but almost like, you know, too many coincidences for it to be a coincidence. So we hired, uh, Elizabeth's cousin two weeks before, uh, she started or before she was abducted. Uh, her cousin was an intern, was a senior at the university of Utah, uh, and then my uh, two business partners at the time, one uh, was very close friends with Tom Smarty. Basically, he was like Uncle Tom. He'd grown up uh, with Tom. His father was a reporter with the Deseret News and had worked closely with Tom for decades. And then the other partner lived in Elizabeth's ward, uh, at least grew up in the ward and, and uh, knew her grandparents. So we had these three ties in. We initially volunteered to help, uh, thinking that it would be a few days, maybe a week or two, and and we'd go back to our day jobs. And uh, there were, I think, six in the agency at the time, and five went back, and I stayed and had the opportunity to take more or less a sabbatical. I had great support. Uh, my business partners at the time were incredible in, in um, 
giving me that opportunity and, and, and providing support as well behind the scenes. So, Chris, I just wanted to know, like, uh, you know, it's interesting because if you had written this book a year after the Elizabeth Smart thing, people would think, well, you're just doing this as a money grab. Uh, but you wrote this 20 plus years after everything had happened. And so maybe tell me what 20 years of reflection or decades of reflection that went into this book and how it's probably a much different book than if you had written it a year after the events. No question. And, and it just never felt right. I, I started a draft. And in fact, it was helpful as I was writing it. I found some chapters and some things I'd written, not a lot, but I had started that about a year after. And it, my wife was always pushing, like, you need to write this, at least for the family's sake, you need to write this. Uh, and so I think she saw her opportunity at that point when she read the epilogue uh, to the first book. Uh, what's been really amazing with this is having the opportunity to go back and with some maturity and with some time and distance to really look at those experiences and to look at them from different angles um, and, and to come to understand uh, some of the things that happened and, and, and some of the people that were involved in a very different way. Uh, it happened at such a frenetic pace. Uh, that there was very little time to think back then. And even when it was over, it, it was it was just in, incredibly difficult to process what had happened. And so having the opportunity to, let's stop, let's look at this, let's, let's go matrix on this and see it three-dimensional and try to figure out, take myself out of it for a minute. What happened here? And what, what was the motivation? And it, it really, for me, was redemptive. It gave me the opportunity, I think, to better understand um, some of the people, some of the people maybe I even struggled with and had struggled with um, some thoughts and, and, and hard feelings for many years, um, came to understand them and appreciate and, and really honor who they were. Hmm. You know, and I just wanted to know too, it's interesting because obviously you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I just want to know, because there was so much that was going on uh, some people like try to tie in a lot of what was happening to Elizabeth with maybe some things with the church, but also just talk about maybe how your faith was affected by this journey and 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 how it also informed you and maybe helped you in this as well. Sure. I, I often think of it. I served a, a mission, as if you've read the book, you know, in Korea. Um, the smart case was like a second mission. And I found myself constantly praying as a, as a missionary. Uh, you find yourself as a young man in very difficult circumstances, trying to navigate language and culture and uh, you know, differences, differences in opinion, differences in beliefs, and constantly saying silent prayers. So it was always like, help me through this. And somehow you'd find a way to navigate the situation. And I found myself constantly praying and asking for inspiration, asking for help. And, and you know, I was young and there's no question that uh, I saw, you know, it was, it, it was well beyond my ability, well, well beyond my ability. And, and there were so many times where I just had a knack. I knew what to do or where to go or what to say. So that that played an important role. I think also understanding the culture and, and, and being able to, you know, work within, um, you know, an amazing organization that came together to, to find Elizabeth. And I, I think there's been some people, I want to maybe clear this really quick, you know, that that wasn't just the church. There were everyone came together. It just happened to be the church was the center of that. Right. And so many great people, I'm sure there were some that were even atheists that were part of the, the effort, but just, you know, it's, it's what's amazing for those who live in Salt Lake and know, and know this culture with its pros and its idiosyncrasies, but it's one of those in, incredible things, how people come together in a time of need. 
Yeah, I love that, Chris. And I just love how, as you said, you had you had faith, you had intuition, you had past experiences, you had your growing up in the culture. You were like a perfect storm of a perfect person that was able to deal with this because I'm sure as the national media and everything descended, literally like locusts, how could they possibly understand the culture that they were expected to navigate? And there you were as a bridge. And correct me if I'm wrong, were you newly married at this time? Like you were you were fairly newly married. Isn't that right? <laughs> yeah. And my wife and I had celebrated our one year anniversary the oh my day goodness. before Elizabeth was abducted. So oh. yeah, it was, it was a really interesting first year. Most people who read the book, they come and say, you know, your wife's incredible. You're so lucky she didn't leave you. And I say, amen, amen, amen. <laughs> and that's it. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, I feel like Steve and I have kind of reconnected and touched base here. Why don't we open it up to the grid now, Bruce, if you can put us on grid review and anybody that has a question um, for Chris, let's just raise our virtual hand. Um, we can also uh, chat in the chat if we want, if you have questions and, and you feel like you're not able to get them in. And let's just ask, uh, let's ask Chris some questions for those of us that have read it, or even if you haven't read it, but you live through the experience because I was along with probably a lot of you here in Salt Lake area when that was happening, you know, and I had little kids and I had just moved into a new house and, and the other ladies on the block and I, you know, we would go running every morning and it is all we talked about. Where is she? What could have happened? Um, we now need to talk to our kids about these hard, these hard conversations with our kids about safety. I mean, it absolutely impacted that summer. It was all anybody here thought about. And I think nationally and internationally in the back of everybody's mind was, you know, where is Elizabeth? What happened? So does anyone have any thoughts about that or questions about that for Chris? Or does anyone remember that time? It was so pivotal for me. I just, I just remember it so clearly, you know, a new phase of life, new house, little kids. I had just quit my job to come home with little kids. And now here's this danger, right? There's this danger out there. There, It was a very tense time. So any other thoughts on that from anybody or any other question for Chris about something like that or anything else? Well, just real quick, uh, uh, Rebecca, while we're lining up uh, for people to uh, ask questions and just remember, just put the hand up in there and that will yes. uh, do that. Um, I was just wondering, um, you, 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 is this the first time you've ever written a book? Yes. Okay. And a lot of people, the first time they write a book, you often have a hard time getting a publisher. Why don't you tell us about the publisher and how you were able to get a, a major publisher to, uh, to, to, uh, do this book yeah i, I was i was really question. fortunate um the anniversary the timeliness of it I, I think really really helped um i i um served on a board with an agent who happened to represent elizabeth smart and i uh, came to him one day and said i've been working on this book and um or, or I, i've the book i've been working on it but really it was still um maybe a third written still pretty conceptual uh, and put together uh, the, the standard, um, what's the right word? It's not a query letter, but, but the book proposal. So put together about a 30-page book proposal. And he took a look at it and said, uh, you know, I think this is, some, you know, I definitely this is something we can you know, find a home for. Um, we, you know, he had had some interesting opportunities. Post Hill Press is a smaller press. It's a Christ, largely a Christian press. Um, they, they publish a lot of conservative titles. Uh, and... 
you know, he came and he said, you know, this is, I know these guys, you can trust these guys. I've worked with them a lot. And the thing that you're going to like about them is they're not going to change your book very much. They liked what they saw in the proposal. He said, I think if we go to a bigger publisher, they're going to sanitize uh, some of the church culture and, and some other things. And so that was a real draw for me. Um, I was grateful that they would take it on and, and, you know, of course, there's always some things that change in the editing process, but there were no significant changes. Um, they, they didn't say, yeah, you got to take that out or you can't, you you know, you got to put this in or you got to change this. Um, you know, no, nothing significant. And I, and I was appreciative of that because the, the culture was something I hadn't planned to write about. It ended up really becoming the glue between the two stories and uh, became something that was very, very insightful. And maybe if I go just a little longer on that. I, I was working with a group of writers from around the country that had no connections to Utah or the Latter-day Saint uh, Church. And uh, in, in an early chapter that I was reviewing, uh, in, in a, we, we do a call every month, they were they really pushed me. They're like, wait a second, you're, you're not telling us the story here. It was kind of funny, though. They're like, what was the bishop wearing? I mean, what kind of robes was he wearing? You know, paint a picture of the church. And so, well, it's kind of pedestrian, um, but, uh, you know, but th there was still interest in that. And, and they really pushed me to write about the culture, which was was really nice because I had it from an outside voice. And I was also able to use them as a sounding board. Uh, you know, does, it, does this make sense? Does this work? Does this not work? And they gave me some really good feedback. So I, I was fortunate to be able to, to share my culture, which is one that's at least uh, nationally, main, you know, from a mainstream standpoint, usually isn't shared in a positive way. How's that for yeah, a that's real a very good answer. point. No, that's a great answer. That absolutely is. Um, Chris, are you able to see raised hands? Would you just like to call on people and field your own questions? Or can sure. you see them at all? If not, yeah, we can do it for you. I can see Deborah's raised yep, hand. So far, that's Deborah. So <laughs> Okay, go ahead, Deborah. Hi. So, um, so I'm the one that asked about um, shows and books and all yeah. that stuff. So... So I had small kids when um, when the abduction happened and and I was following it in the news. But um, there was just there was something about Elizabeth. She was so young. She was so, you know, innocent, uh, vulnerable, all of those things. I I have kind of stayed away from everything because. Because she should have been able to grow up out of the public eye which is of course impossible but um but i i wasn't going to be one of the people you know one of the vultures um and and the other thing is um you know i've uh, i've seen her grow up and she's she's grown up into an amazing strong woman you know children of her own um and I probably actually wouldn't have read your book if she hadn't written the foreword. Oh, nice. <laughs> right. Um, so my question is, um, uh, the question that I asked on Facebook, basically, what, you know, what's the short list of the books? Of course, there's the book that she wrote, which I want to read. Um, but the books and the documentaries that, that are actually worth my time. Uh I'll, I'll go about this in a roundabout way, Deborah, because there's an interesting <laughs> side story. So 
when Elizabeth was rescued that night, there were almost as many agents trying to buy the story as there were reporters covering the story. They had flown in on private jets. Uh, I was being handed cards. I was being handed all kinds of things. And so that there was a process of not just managing the media, but over the coming weeks, trying to figure out what to do. And, and there was a man um, who, I, I don't want to mention his name, but there was a man who set up shop in the Grand America Hotel and had contracted with all the smarts neighbors and many people in law enforcement and many journalists and basically uh, met with us and said, I'm doing the meeting or I'm doing the book and movie and you can either cooperate with me or we'll just tell the story the way we're going to tell it. It was, it, and, and, you know, it was very much a power play. Uh, it was kind of, I don't know, extortion wouldn't be the right word, but, uh, and, and so we said no. And at that point, the family decided it was in their best interest to do a book and a movie. Now, kind of the aside, and I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, they wanted to do the most boring version of a book and a movie that you could do, uh, especially with the movie. They didn't want it to be overly dramatic. They wanted Elizabeth to be minimized. And so then we were negotiating, how do we tell the story? So the CBS story, the CBS movie that came out, I'm a character in the movie. It, it, it's a terrible character. The guy who plays me can't act alike. Uh, but but I'm, I'm, I'm honored that they would use it. Those, the, you know, the first book, there's some interesting faith things from the smarts as far as the story. It, it rambles a little. Some of it's accurate. Some of it's not. And it's their perspective. I mean, you have to remember whoever's writing it, it's coming from their perspective. And, and so they see and remember things differently. Um, Tom Smart wrote a book about five years later, maybe a little less than that. Uh, and Tom's book is interesting. It really gets into the investigation. Uh, I cite it several times in my book. And I decided to almost stay away from the investigation because he had done such a good job in uh, in, in chronicling that. So I, I, I go light on the investigation. If you're really interested in um, some of the craziness there, Tom's book is, is excellent. And um, Elizabeth's book, I mean, that's, that's her firsthand account. I, I found it riveting. I wouldn't read it late at night. It is gritty. It's kind of gritty, uh, but you really see her um, determination. You, you just see how incredibly strong she is in that book. Um, and, and I haven't seen um, the documentaries that she's done, but I understand they're very good uh, just in the last few years. Uh, and so I would think those are pretty good. A lot of the documentaries, I think it was a BBC one. Um, there's there's a handful. I and this is this, this is going to sound pretentious. I struggled with them because they didn't consult with me, and I would watch those docs and I'd be like, "But you didn't even talk to anyone who was really there, and you don't really know what happened here." I felt like there were lots of holes um, that could have been filled in, and, and you know they're still still okay. But I that, that I don't know, Deborah. That's a very long answer. Um, I think Elizabeth's stuff is all really excellent. Of course, I'm a huge fan. That's awesome. We'll try to put a list together of what you've said and see if we can put that out on, on Facebook and on our different uh, Facebook pages so people can dive into more about Elizabeth. Love it. Landon, you're up. Yeah. Uh, my question, Chris, is you were 29 years old when this all happened and you got called to represent the family. Did you ever suspect that the family might be involved and how did that scare you or how did you think of that as a 29 year old that someone in your family could be involved? Yeah, it scared me to death uh, in the chapter breaking news uh, when the, the Tribune story uh, broke is that before before it hit Channel 4 at the time had 
an agreement with the Tribune that they could publish whatever was on the front page at 1025. And, and, and so this story broke at 1025, but I had heard about it from a producer with one of the large networks, kind of gave me a heads up of what was going on. And I was really nervous, especially I work in public relations. Reputation is everything. So my reputation is, is on the line at that point. Uh, and I called the member, a uh, member of the family, per, the person I trusted the most. And I just started picking her brain. I said, look, it, you know, I, I, this is precarious. It's a difficult conversation to be having, but is it possible that anyone in the family, you know, could be doing that or, or could be involved in any way? And she, she said, absolutely not. Uh, she said, you, you know, you need to trust us. And, and I, I always, you know, from an LDS lingo, I always listen to the spirit from a world, you know, from a, a general world, I always trust my gut and my gut told me things were okay. But yeah, I, I had my suspicion at that point. And, you know, you either are all in or you're not and, and decided that I was going to move forward, felt good about that. And, and fortunately things turned out the way that they did. So if you don't mind me just asking a question, um, I'm just curious. So at the beginning of the book, it talks about the very first time you actually met Elizabeth. Maybe just talk about what that was like, that this whole time you're doing this whole thing for the family and then you're trying to find her and then you finally meet her. Yeah, it was surreal. Uh, and, and the first time I met her, uh, those who've read the book know it, it was in the police station and I'd been called down after Ed Smart had kind of lost it. And uh, after John Walsh had, had called me with some information about victims' rights, which were being completely abused. And, and so I was called down to the police station to calm Ed down. And as I was getting out of the elevator, there, there was Elizabeth. And I, I didn't know how to react. I didn't expect that at all. Uh, that was a complete surprise. You know, I'd hoped to meet her at some point. Um, and and, and I, I didn't say anything initially. There were some uh, political and other figures that were there kind of glad handing with her. And, and I just didn't feel it was appropriate. And so it wasn't until later that night that I was formally introduced. And I uh, talk about that in the book, which was, you know, one of, you know, the most incredible experiences of my life. Uh, that, that whole day is just, I relive that all the time. That's amazing. I have a question, Chris. Um, I can't remember if, if, if you had mentioned this in the book. I'm just wondering, since um, Steve mentioned meeting her, I mean, the conclusion now is, you know, it's in front of you. you the light at the end of the tunnel, it's there. You see it. And then how soon after that did you did you did you have a moment where you just. I, I can't remember if you mentioned in the book or not, but you just an emotional like. Was there like a big emotional outburst or, or let, you know, did you have, did you have to go to counseling or therapy after this? I mean, I mean, you know, cause this is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I did. <laughs> oh, a, a, a few thoughts on that, Tom. Uh, <laughs> one, so I, I, you know, in, in the book, it, you know, miraculously, I found out, you know, that she had been rescued and was able to relay that information to the family. We had about 45 minutes before uh, the news broke. And I remember sitting on the ground against the wall in my office. I couldn't sit in my chair. I was just kind of overcome. And, and, and I called my wife and she didn't believe me at first. It really took some convincing. Uh, and then we just, you know, there was some emotion then, and then it was into work mode. It was, it, it, I constantly found myself like wanting to, feel wanting to you know be a part of things and realizing that I had a job to do or that I needed to support or be somewhere else and and so there was a lot of that 
I'm very getting very personal here. About six weeks after the book was released, I started getting just anxious and kind of weird depression. And so I, I, mm. I, I'm a huge proponent of counseling and, and worked with a therapist throughout writing the book and went in and, and um, she kind of worked through some things and said, here's what's going on. You're, you're, feel, you're reliving the trauma of when the smarts let you go. Uh, and was able to kind of work through that, but you know, it, yeah, you, you go through an experience like this and it, it definitely changes you. And I, I think I've tried to be very healthy in how I've processed it. No, I mean, I just, in reading the book, I mean, there was just so much going on that nine months up the ups and downs and just everything you had to manage, the family had to manage all the stories, all the innuendo, everything that was coming out, everything that people thought they knew, the John Walsh stuff, every, just the press, the media. And I, I, that's just a lot to carry. I would think, uh, especially on a 29 year old, <laughs> I was like, what do you do with that? So maybe in a way writing the book was helping you even process yeah. even further. I thought um, I processed yeah. it, but you know. Yeah. I, now you're an adult and you're looking back on it. I mean, even older, I should say 20 years later. I, no, I feel yeah. like I am an adult now compared <laughs> to then. <laughs> no, but then I have to ask this follow-up is when you find out who took her and then the details, can you share it all? Did you have other reactions? I mean, what was that like when you realized that, yeah, what happened? I, I mean, for me right off, it was like, this is complicated. It, it wasn't so much the history or what this means. And, and in fact, I, I, when I represent a client, I have to represent that client. I have to be as objective as possible and put my personal interest aside. And I talk about this a little bit in the book of, um, you know, Elizabeth's my client getting into why her, uh, you know, the perpetrators took her and what their, you know, what their background and history was. That wasn't going to be advantageous for the family. Uh, I, I, I thought about it a lot. I write about some of those thoughts, uh, but it, it was really the fact that she had survived it, um, that she was well, and, and really putting the focus more on that at that time. Uh, but realizing that, you know, it, it, it's a scar for me thinking about that, you know, that this is this is an extremist. And it seems like extremists are the ones that give religion a bad name. And, and so here we're dealing with this extremist, but a lot of people who are less familiar uh, with the religion and its culture are, are seeing it more as mainstream, but it wasn't my job to fix that at that time. And, and, I, and I deliberately stayed away from it, despite the fact that you know, I was and am a faithful member uh, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Wow. Yeah, I think you probably had to, honestly, like you said, she's your client. You have to have that relationship best for her. So speaking of client, one thing that I, I was so fascinated by in the book was just your relationship with the entire family, not just Ed, not just Lois, not you know, the children, some of the relatives, the brothers, the uncles, some of the family members that got in the way and drove you crazy. Can you talk a little bit about that? You were literally in their family. You were living in their house. You were a member of the smart family, you know, for quite a period of time. And, and to me, that was very fascinating just to see how you navigated all of that. Well, I, I think that universally, anytime we go through something really difficult or hard uh, and we're with somebody, I think we have a tendency to bond with them. I know as a missionary, you know, a lot of the guys I was in the trenches with, um, 
that that we have remained very close uh, because we we grew up together. We you know went through hard things together, and so it's impossible. And I've had the opportunity to work with dozens and dozens of families since doing pro bono um, uh, work, uh, crisis communications work. Uh, it, it, there's always a bond, uh, but because of the duration and the depth and it really being the first family I had worked with, there was a really deep bond. I, I really felt they, they embraced me uh, from grandpa smart initially, but beyond, you know, on down. And, and I felt that I felt, I felt that love and, and I felt like I was in it with them and, and wanted to do everything I could to help them. And, and it was a remarkable experience just being a part of a new family, you know, with its, strengths and weaknesses and idiosyncrasies and you know everything else but when you go through something like this as well there are so many vulnerable moments and so many things that arise and and uh, i was really grateful to the smarts that they let me in that's amazing and you still have a relationship to this day i mean look at elizabeth wrote your forward to the book which is wonderful because i can see how that continues once you've gone through something like that that's amazing wow Anyone else have any other questions? I feel like I'm talking a lot. So <laughs> Landon, you look like you want to say something <laughs> or, or was that just going like this? <laughs> There's so much to this book. And honestly, if you have not had a chance to read it, even just being aware of the situation, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you can think of that, that you'd be curious to ask because there was so much behind the scenes. I mean, when I think about the book, um, I think those of us who who were just watching it from the outside in, we didn't understand maybe the frustration with law enforcement. Maybe that was sort of this undercurrent that was there. I mean, we would see things come on the news all of a sudden where the family would say, oh, we wish it was like, you know, but it, it wasn't anything that we knew until we saw that news story. And then we'd all talk about it. Oh, I wonder if, you know, I wonder if something's happening or maybe it's not being handled right. But you lived with that undercurrent the entire time of the you know, back and forth and the give and take with law enforcement. Right. And, and knowing a lot of information behind the scenes as well. And, yes. and, and to that, a lot of people have asked uh, my feelings towards law enforcement. And probably if there's anybody that I'm pretty harsh on in here, it's law enforcement. I really don't try to be. I'm just trying to provide the facts as I as I recount them. Uh, and, and the other thing you, know, you have to consider with law enforcement is they're doing the best job they can. They're underfunded. Uh, they, they deal with incredible trauma day in and day out. And, and so I, I, and I remember the smarts making a very concerted effort uh, from the moment Elizabeth came home and in the ensuing days to not criticize law enforcement, but to express appreciation, uh, which I thought was in, you know, indicative of them. They would take the high road in, in that situation. Not that they you know, weren't you know, having conversations about how to hopefully fix some things and, and make sure that someone else didn't have the same experience. Uh, but they were always very gracious. And, and I think there were some great lessons learned from that because we all we're all around imperfect people all the time who, you know, make, make mistakes. And, 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 I, and the vast majority of law enforcement who were working on this were doing everything they could to find Elizabeth. They got caught up in a little bit of herd mentality with, uh, a, a very senior person who believed very strongly it was Richard Reese and, and couldn't see beyond that. And, and so I, I, you know, I, I know there were regrets. I know Corey Lyman, um, who was, uh, headed, headed the effort for many months. Um, I've talked to him since and, and he's always very apologetic. And, and, and I always felt like Corey was very, um, genuine and, and, you know, it's like, Corey, don't worry about it. You know, the important thing is we got Elizabeth back. 
and there were lessons learned and hopefully things are better now. Wow. Hindsight, right? Though hindsight, everyone's like, why couldn't you have seen that? Well, no one could have seen it. it yeah. It, something. Yeah, for sure. I think Landon has his hand Landon. up. Landon, do you have your hand up or is that an accident? Yeah, no, I've, I've got it up. <laughs> He's got it up. <laughs> uh, my question is, um, do you do you ever feel like the the teachings of the church kind of being very trusting, especially in Utah. Uh, do you ever feel like that played into number one? Uh, I, I think Ed went and they they got the guy from a Home Depot or something and let him work on the house, you know, trying to do a, a Christian deed. And also, you know, once she was kidnapped, did she trust him a little too much because of that uh, that background of, of trusting those in your neighborhood or those that, that uh, around you? Landon, it, it, it's a great point about about the culture. Uh, maybe to to go into a little bit of detail on that, it was really interesting because initially Ed brought Richard Reese into the picture, who was the handyman um, who was accused, uh, and, and circumstantially it looked like he had done it. Lois Smart had met um, Brian David Mitchell uh, walking between Crossroads and ZCMI Mall and gave him. Uh, gave him Ed's number. So she kind of brought him into the house. And I think that created uh, some, some challenges between both of them. Not, not that either of them was accusing the other of being wrong, but you know, who they brought in, but I, you know, I, there definitely are some lessons learned there. As far as Elizabeth was concerned, I'm not sure she trusted them at all. I think she was strongly manipulated. I mean, I, I had the opportunity to go up to the camp where she was held with her and, and they're still on the tree. You can see where the cable uh, had been strung. The, the, it, it, it's bruised in that place. And you know, hearing her, seeing that place, by the way, a lot of people say, oh, it's only a mile away. How couldn't you find it? It was like practically carved into the side of a mountain. It's very steep. It was. We went up with a crew with Meredith Vieira and a crew of photographers from the East Coast. It took us four hours to hike that mile to give you an idea of the train, but also, you know, people coming from the East Coast, the elevation affected them a little bit, but it was, it was quite a hike, but being there and hearing and understanding the emotional, uh, you know, really the emotional bounds that were on her, you know, the fact that he threatened her constantly and said, look, you know, at one point she heard her uncle screaming out and wanted to do something. And, and, you know, there were a, a few other cases where he said, look, I got in the house, I got you. I'll go back in there. I'll take your sister out. I'll take the rest of your family out. I will kill them uh, if you try to run. And, and, you know, and being 14, you know, that was enough. I, you know, it's easy to second guess, but that was enough for her to believe and, and, and feel a need to, you know, do what she had to, to survive. And protect her family. I mean, that was part of it. I know toward the end, he made an attempt to get one of her cousins, the same kind yes. of thing, right? Which they didn't really put together. So he was not, they were idle threats. I mean, I can see why she believed he could have the power to take anybody away that she loved. And I'm sure she felt that she was protecting everybody. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit, you mentioned a little bit before the mobilization effort from the LDS church, the community, everyone, the command center. I mean, that is one good thing about Utah culture like that. You can, <laughs> and and I, I was super impressed in the book about how just quickly, just talk about that a little bit, especially for, for people who haven't read the book, what was happening here? It was incredible. Yeah. And, and so the, the, 
previous record for a search for a missing child was 4,000 people over three months. 10,000 people showed up to search the first week Elizabeth was missing. And it, there were so many people, the, the command center was, was overwhelmed and just constantly was getting more and more people and trying to figure out organization. And, and uh, you know, it, it was everything. People pulling up, you know, restaurants delivering food, um, people showing up with supplies. Uh, and, and, and to me, I, I one of, probably one of the most enduring memories from uh, that experience was going into the orientation area where... Uh, before you searched, you had to sign some papers, sign a release, and then you had to sit through a 20-minute orientation where they gave you uh, some instructions on how to search. And every time I went in there, I would get emotional. No matter how busy I was, no matter how crazy things were, I would just, I would get hit by just strong emotion. And I would see people sitting around the table. And I remember this one day, um, a guy, I, I saw a guy ar arrive in a Porsche, really nicely dressed. And then I saw some other people who could have been homeless. They at least were, were, were from some form of, you know, they were experiencing some form of poverty, get off a bus. And then I later saw them all sitting at the same table. You know, how often does that happen? And I saw people from different religions. They always said a prayer at the start. And periodically I would hear the Lord's prayer, or I, I remember once hearing one in Hebrew and just seeing everybody putting aside all of our differences and really focusing on, on, on serving somebody else, just how much that changed hearts and, and how, for me, that was a something, and not just an enduring memory, but something that I, I hope has changed me and has helped me to look at people uh, differently and, and to really recognize what matters most. Yeah, I love that part of the book. And I have to say that all of us were looking for her. Those of you in the area at the time, you were probably like me. Anywhere you would go, you would just look. You would just take note. You know, of course, my huge objection, <laughs> and I used to just yell about this with my running partners, is she's a child, but she's taller than I am. <laughs> you know, she was a, I'm 5'5", five five, probably shrinking, probably 5'4 now. And so all of us were looking, you know, for this adorable little blonde girl. But I kept saying, you guys, we need to be looking up. She's not, she's young, but she's as tall as we all are. But the point is, we were all looking. She, it was always in our mind. Anytime we'd go somewhere or even on vacation, I remember going a couple times that summer and just looking, you know, we're in Portland. Could she be here? You know, where is she? So, and I remember hearing, um, I don't know if I read a memoir of Lois or heard her talk, but there was one point where Lois sort of let go and right. just said, I'm going to have to be at peace with this for my other children. Elizabeth is gone. Did you ever have a moment like that? I mean, you weren't the mother. So I'm thinking maybe you didn't, but even on some level, did you ever? I, you know, it, there, <laughs> as it was going on, and I think it was not just with me, but indicative of, of most of the men in the family. Things were getting uh, harder and harder at home. Uh, as you know, my wife's like, "This has gone on long enough. She's gone. Let it go. Get back to the family. Get back to work." Uh, and and I think there there were several times where I'm like, "I'm done. I'm quitting." You know, and and then the next day, of course, I would go back to to work on it. Uh, and and it, not just as it wasn't just lip service. I genuinely was like, "I'm done." But then the next day, I can't do this. I got to keep going. And so that was really hard. I think there were a lot of periods I write about, you know, an experience late at night um, where I meet up with Ed and he needs to talk. And he tells me, I know she's out there. I know people think I'm crazy, but I just, I feel it. I know she's out there. We're doing everything we can 
to find her. And that was very renewing for me when that happened. I mean, there was, you know, father's intuition and, you know, maybe he is crazy, but gosh, he's feeling something and, and I'm feeling something and, you know, we got to keep going, um, that type of thing. So I, I don't know that there was like a moment where I completely said, Hey, she's, she's gone. Um, realistically, you know, your crisis communications, you're kind of a cynic. You're always doing, you're always looking at worst case scenarios. So, you know, we'd planned for her not coming home alive and, and had planned also for uh, the other outcome, but we're realistic about, you know, the situation, but I don't know that I completely said she's gone and, you know, what we need to move on. Just right. And I understand up. why Lois, oh, sorry, Tom, when, when, no, it's gonna say, how, how many months into the ordeal did Lois have that? I can't remember in the book when you, they mention it, when you mentioned it. It's a couple, it. it's, it's a couple, couple months. Just two months in. Probably about so, two months. Yeah, yeah. If I remember. Cause you talked about this, the surge of help, the people were helping. And then it, was there a point where it just kind of tail off and then it really got dramatic? And you, I mean, I, I just was curious about what rock bottom might've been like, where, what moment in the whole nine months, was it just like the lowest of low point? And then what you did to rally, just like, how did you all get up out of that? So it, it, it was interesting because it was about two months before, and I, and, and I might be wrong. It might've been a little before that, uh, but, but that's when all the satellite trucks, uh, picked up and moved on to the next story. And, and there just wasn't much to talk about. The search had yeah. been decentralized uh, because they had searched so much that, in, and unless there was something very specific, um, they would do that. And Ed was just beside himself. I just didn't even know what to do with himself. He was struggling to go back to work. And, you know, and it was at that point that we started lobbying for the National Amber Alert. And that was a lifesaver because it gave him and some of the other family members, something very meaningful that they could do. And in the process, you know, keep Elizabeth's story alive. And, and I don't know that it was by design, like, hey, this is, you know, like some concept. It was, it just kind of evolved as we were talking to the congressional delegation about where do we, where do we get Ed involved? How, how can we put some of his energy to a good cause? And, and so that was, that was really helpful. When Richard Reese died, that was a very low moment uh, because it, it felt like, both, you know, potentially he had some information that could have helped and now he's gone. And also knowing that the police department had, had put everything into him and they were kind of moving on. So that that was really challenging. I think Landon has yeah, a question. Chris, uh, once you found Elizabeth, uh, I, I got to think, I can't imagine how emotionally, how mentally difficult it must have been for her when she came back home, what was the transition like? Was there feelings of, of, you know, removal from the family? Did she immediately embrace and go right back into the family? And what did the process look like for her to really get back to normal? What was the time frame and stuff for that? Um, she acclimated immediately. I saw that at the police station when she reconnected with her siblings uh, you know, that that night, and and Lois writes about this in her book, Deborah. That maybe this is a really cool part of her book, where uh, she's giving Elizabeth a bath, and and she says to Elizabeth, um, and Elizabeth writes about this as well. You know, this man took nine and a half months of your life. Don't give him another day. Uh, and 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 you know, she really tried to live by that. I you know, we went. My wife and I went with um, the Smarts to Hawaii. Very generous client. Uh, paid for us to go to Hawaii about 10 days after Elizabeth came home. And on that trip, she was 
to me, as normal as any of the other smart siblings. I mean, they were, it was like she had never gone anywhere. Um, you know, she, she had at that time, you know, very strong faith, um, you know, had been given a, a priesthood blessing and, and, and really believed that she could be healed from what happened to her. I don't know that's all of it, but it was remarkable how normal she meant, how normal um, she was very early on. And it's interesting too, the smarts, Ed and Lois, didn't coddle her. In fact, she was working at a bank like two years later, less than two years later. I mean, they, like she had a job and she was going to have a normal life. And, and while there were some precautions put in place to protect her, um, they very much wanted her to be as normal as possible. And I, I think that was, was very positive. Yeah, it's absolutely inspiring to see what she's gone on to do. And I love how uh, her husband who she married didn't really know anything about the story, you know, yeah. from what I understand knew really nothing because I think everybody else would be like, There's you know, she would just always kind of have that, that uh, notoriety, but she got married and seems to have a very normal life. And you guys have a relationship now, which is, which is awesome. And all the things that she's doing. So I don't know if everybody realizes about Ed and the Amber alert, maybe just talk a little bit. About, you mentioned it just a minute ago, but he really, I mean, there was no Amber alert before that. I don't think a lot of us re remember that that did not exist because now that's so common. We get that on our phone all the time, or we say, has someone, you know, put out an Amber alert. We live with that every day, but that didn't exist back then at all. Right. And that was something that he became very passionate about. It was, it was stuck legislatively. I mean, the classic, the bill, you know, all kinds of other things had been attached to the bill and, and neither side could agree on it. And it just kept stalling. And Ed was calling for, uh, for it to be uh, a standalone bill. And, and he and Jim Sensenbrenner from Wisconsin, they had this major behind the scenes battle going on. Uh, Sensenbrenner was holding it up. Everyone we talked to, uh, we, we went to Washington a couple of times and, and I remember meeting with some of Sensenbrenner's colleagues and they're like, we, you know, we don't know what to do. Jim does what he's, he's going to do and there's no really changing his mind. And it was when Elizabeth was, was rescued uh, that Ed, um, <laughs> in very sharp terms called Sensenbrenner out publicly and said he was the one holding it up. Uh, and Sensenbrenner was offended by it. But interestingly enough, the legislation passed like a week later, a week or two later. Mm. So, you know, really Elizabeth <laughs> coming home, Elizabeth's rescue is largely responsible for the Amber Alert passing. Wow. Well, I think everybody saw the value there that people do come home. I mean, prior to that, there might've been that idea that it just, you look and you search, but what are the odds? It's not gonna, and I, I try to rack my brain. Did I think she was out there or was there a point where I felt it just wasn't gonna happen? You know, I think everybody was different on a different page. And like you said, your own wife said, maybe talk about that for a second. I don't believe you. You know what I mean? Did she really, when you told, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, tell I mean, us about the moment. How did you get the news? Did someone call? Did someone text? Go through that just for a minute yeah. because that's the goosebump moment right there. Yeah, so, um. I, you know, there had been a controversy that morning. Uh, the, the Smarts, Tom Smart, had been very critical of law enforcement. The Tribune had run a front page story. The national media was interested. They weren't interested when we came out in the, with the information about Brian David Mitchell, both locally and nationally. And now that there's drama, they're all over it. And so we had called a press conference for early afternoon and Ed and Tom were, were, going, uh, were coming to my office to prepare to figure out how to navigate through the mess. And um, a, a few minutes before the meeting, Ed called and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to be late. I might not make it to the meeting. 
um, I wasn't supposed to call you. And I said, well, then why are you calling me? And he said, because I was going to be late. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, I've been summoned to the Sandy City Police Department, told to talk to Noah, not even Lois, and to get there as quickly as I can. And fortuitously, uh, I had stayed in contact with, with a good friend from high school, a basketball teammate who was a detective with the Sandy City Police Department. And so I I called him incessantly until he finally answered. He was was very curt on the phone. And um, I finally said, look, I know Ed's been summons down there. If you can tell me anything at all, I'd be eternally grateful. He said, no, I can't and hung up. And we started, we had a resolution plan. So we started pulling that resolution plan out, knowing something was going on. He called me back about five minutes later, said, I'm sorry, you wouldn't stop calling. And the chief finally said, take the call. As I was in the room, we brought in an indigent, an indigent teenager that we believe is Elizabeth Smart and just, you know, mouth agape and, um, and, and I took a lot to regain my composure. And I said, so where did you find the body? And he said, what body? She's in the room next to me. Um, we're waiting for Ed to get here. And so that, you know, knowing that at that point, uh, we were able to to uh, inform the rest of the family. And, and, and we had a specific protocol on how we wanted to, to handle things. We wanted to not respond publicly until after law enforcement had. So we had the opportunity to clarify anything, any misinformation that might be out. Um, but it was at that point, Tom Smart was starting to call down our phone tree and I pushed aside and said, I need to make a call. So I called my wife and, you know, it was uh, like, I don't know, get emotional. You know, she, she played as big a role as, you know, as I did her support and and being there. And it was one of those moments where, you know, we, we did this, we did this together and, and, you know, and after all, it, it's going to be worth it. And so that was, that was a really amazing, amazing call. We, we still had some to work through. We, we did some marriage counseling as we were writing the book, we, we went back to counseling on some of the things, but <laughs> Um, but you know, it's, it's been great. We, we have an, a phenomenal relationship and, and she is an amazing partner and friend and, and did an amazing job helping me with the book was just such a, a an amazing sounding board and, and, and support. And she's not one who patronizes. So it, it, you know, I, I know exactly where things are, which I always appreciate. Wow. Well, it sounds like you probably couldn't have done it without her, which is, not, which is wonderful. You know, there's no way that you could have. So awesome. Yeah. I think Steve's got his hand up. <laughs> so Chris, I just wanted to uh, say, uh, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us. And thank you to Rebecca for inviting me to be, uh, have a collaboration with the Good Book Club. But I guess the biggest question I have, the most important question I have for you is how is Elizabeth Smart doing today? Well, Steve, first off, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and pulling this together uh, and having this discussion. Uh, our discussion before was by far one of my favorites. Uh, and, and I followed you pretty closely since then uh, and, and really love the work that you do. Um, Elizabeth's doing really well. Um, she uh, is a mom, you know, and, and I talk to her pretty frequently. I mean, we have kind of a brother-sister type relationship. I know her family well. She knows my family well. And, and we're always kind of talking through what's going on. She she has taken the the role as kind of the, the lead sibling who leads the family and, and manages all the issues and 
and and you know she's she's remarkable um but is busy with speaking and advocating and and um raising kids uh i don't know i still don't know how she does it wow that's absolutely amazing it's wonderful to hear that update and and i think that's probably a good place to to close unless anybody else has any follow-up questions we try to keep these to about an hour for everybody so i feel like i got all my questions out steve how do you feel <laughs> yeah yeah this is and, this and is great I, I hope everybody else had a, had a really good time listening. And, and again, if you have not had a chance to read this book, you just barely got a preview today. I mean, literally, you'll pick it up and not be able to put it down. And it's a wonderful read. It's a perfect summer read, I think. It's just so full of, you know, and we didn't even really get into a lot of, as we talked about, the the sort of joining of Chris's story as a young person, informing what he did later. And that's a beautiful, beautiful part of the book too. Wouldn't you say, Steve, that's a wonderful part of the book, all of his experiences growing up and things like that. So yeah, yeah we can't recommend this more. I mean, I'm sorry that you didn't win one if you didn't, but please go purchase it or get it on Audible. It's just a wonderful story. So I think we have some final slides really quick, just as hey, we Rebecca, finish here. I don't know yes. if this is in there or not, but I wanted to add. So uh, when I launched the book, I, I launched a website, christhomasconnects.com. There, there's okay. a different URL at the back, but it will direct you there. And on there, I pulled uh, several videos, I think 10, 12 videos from that time. Um, so when I'm talking about, for example, the, the press conference, when Elizabeth returned, there's actually some of the footage from that uh, and oh different, different pieces throughout. So I give a little bit of, of, uh, of background on it, but if anyone's interested in that or some of the pictures, it, it, it's kind of a, a fun resource. Oh, no, we'll definitely include that in the show notes. And tell me the name again. It's Chris Thomas Connects. Yep, ChrisThomasConnects.com. Oh, no, that sounds wonderful. Because I know, as I was reading, I was kind of playing through my mind. Oh, that's I remember what that looked like on the news. I remember that footage of her walking down the sidewalk. And I remember this and that. But for those people who are not as old as I am, which are quite a few of you, <laughs> that would be an amazing resource just to check out. So everybody go over to Chris Thomas Connects and watch some of that and then get the book. So uh, very quickly, as we end here for the Good Book Club, the next book on the radar is going to be The Unfolding of Language by Guy Dutcher. And that is going to be our book for August 13th. Um, that's Sunday, of course, as always. So grab that book. It's not available on audio. You're going to have to do some hardcore actual reading, but it's going to be worth it. It's a great one. Another amazing event on the radar, and this is for Steve's audience and my audience and Mormon Stories Book Club, everybody. This is an incredible reader's theater. There's a play called Mountain Meadows written by a University of Utah law professor. And through the Entrada Institute, they are going to perform this as a reader's theater in Torrey, Utah. Of course, we all can't go to Torrey, Utah, although I'm going to go because <laughs> I've seen this play before in Salt Lake. But this is going to be live streamed on Saturday the 15th, that's this Saturday coming up at 7 p.m. And all you need to do is go to the Entrada Institute on Facebook, just search it, pull it up. And they have assured me that at five to seven, the live stream is going to start. And so everybody can enjoy this. This is an incredibly insightful play. It's a juxtaposition of Juanita Brooks, 
studying and writing and facing great odds to get information out and, you know, uh, pioneer era and uh, even back to Mountain Meadows itself. So um, can't recommend this play enough either. So check that out on coming up on Saturday at 7 p.m. Um, if you are attending and you'd like to join the Good Book Club, if you're not a member yet, um, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. You can send me an email at thegoodbookclubatmail.com. And we'll let Steve, why don't you uh, talk about some of your ways to connect or some of your things coming up and we'll let you have some time here. Okay. Well, first of all, yes, you could reach me at uh, mormonbookreviews at gmail.com is my contact information. You can also friend request me on Facebook. I do also have a private group on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, everywhere else. You can, and of course, you have my YouTube channel. Um, and I also want to tell the audience too, that there will be links in the description in my show notes as well to everything that we talked about today regarding the book and Chris's website as well. And I think it's really important that we have these conversations. And I'm really glad that we did this collaboration today, Rebecca. And I just like to just say for my audience, don't forget that there will be links in the description for those of you who'd like to support the channel financially, both on Patreon, Venmo, as well as PayPal. And of course, don't forget, we do have our lovely merch store, mormonbookreviews.com where we have hot I've got my book club merch not usually I hold up my mountain but <laughs> yeah you got your merch you got my merch so Mormon Book Reviews has our merchandise uh, there so if you want to support us there that's great as well so yeah, I think this was an awesome uh, episode, Rebecca. What do you choose? You know, I do too. I feel like maybe we might have to do this again. I actually have always thought that Mormon Book Review should start a book club. It's not that hard to do. I'd be more than happy to help you. It's very fun. I'm not kidding. You just throw out a title, people read, and they gather to talk about it. So now this episode will be put on the Good Book Club YouTube channel the Mormon Book Reviews YouTube channel, also on all of our audio podcast channels, right? It's always going to go there too. And I think we'll also put it on um, my podcast that I run with Landon Mormon-ish. So this will be everywhere. And so everybody can listen again or recommend it to your friends because this was a fascinating evening, a wonderful topic. And again, Chris, we cannot thank you enough for spending a Tuesday night with us. Thank you. So much fun. Thank you. Yep, it was wonderful. And we'll say goodnight, everybody. Thank you all so much. Good night.